You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on the Skylight Books Crowdcast channel to celebrate Ashley Hudson's new novel, One's Company. Um, if I had the ability to in uh, in Crowdcast, I would probably take this moment to play the Three's Company theme song. But we will let Sarah and Ashley talk a little bit about more th that in a little bit. Ashley Hudson is a writer living in rural Maryland. Her work has appeared in Granta, Electric Literature, Catapult, Fanzine, and elsewhere. Her honors include the 2018 Small Fictions Award, judged by Amy Bender and several Pushcart Prize nominations. Sarah Levine is the author of the short story collection, Short Dark Oracles, and the novel Treasure Island. She teaches at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Ashley, do you want to start us off by reading a little something? Sure. Um, I will read from the beginning. That way I don't spoil anything for anybody. Okay. After I won the lottery, a lot of strangers showed up to tell me what a piece of trash I was. Then they would ask me for money. Neighbors known and unknown to me, people I used to see at the market, old high school classmates who'd never given me the time of day. They all felt compelled to just say hi. I knew they hated me because most people hate unglamorous luck. That's what winning the money with a mindless number is, unearned and uninherited wealth. And each new arrival acted like something had been stolen from them. It's so nice that someone like you won the lottery, Bonnie, they'd say in a half-joking tone, verging on a sneer. Want to take me out to dinner? They knew how to keep it subtle. Some of them even called me Bon Bon, an over-familiar nickname I hadn't heard since childhood, which told me their hatred had ripened into the sourest grape on the vine. These strangers swarmed onto my tiny porch, undeterred by the sunken corner that had rotted through and knocked on my door one by one, jerking me out of the deep planning and dreaming I was absorbed in. For this, I wished them dead, but I tried to be polite. Each time I opened the door, I told myself that this was the sacrifice that was required, one of many to come, I suspected. Even when the cameras and news teams came to gawk and rut up the scabby grass in front of my trailer, I stayed cool. What does it feel like to win so much money, they'd say. What will you be doing with it all? Reporters loved asking me these types of questions when they caught me coming out of my front door. One of them even asked, are you planning on investing in your community? They looked around at my shit neighborhood and expected me to soak in it forever, I guess. I told them that I didn't know what I would do with the money, or I answered the way I knew I was supposed to answer, that I was planning on saving it. I'd say it in a really earnest voice as if the mere thought of saving all that beautiful cash was turning me into a realer, wiser adult as I stood there. But my days of scrimping and saving were over. I had big ideas, was planning big moves. My fate had been brewing long before I walked a mile to where lotto beer cigs glowed in neon letters on the gas station door, long before I handed over my money to the pimply cashier and my future was handed back. I didn't, I didn't dare tell that story to another human being, though, let alone a reporter. 
Back then, I never shared my plans or preferences, my ambitions or desires. I never gave away the things I loved. I knew better. Other people can ruin a dream just by knowing it. My brain had been feeling ragged for weeks by the time I bought the lottery tickets, it's true. Sick of everything around me, and I longed for something more, something extraordinary. But on the afternoon I walked to the gas station, I received the mission of my life, the plan, and it was channeled through the television show Three's Company. It had been a Saturday, my day off from work, and I had just finished watching The Root of All Evil, wherein Jack Tripper goes to the racetrack, bets on the horses chosen by his roommates Chrissy Snow and Janet Wood, wins, and returns to apartment 201 with fistfuls of money. I'd already seen the episodes dozens of times, and it wasn't even one of my favorites. But on that afternoon in late August, as the credits rolled, I sweated and dreamed inside my trailer that never seemed to get cool, yearning for a different time and place, a different identity. And I was wishing, as usual, that I could crawl into Three's company and live there, curled up on the trio's living room carpet, willing to eat scraps and suck vinegar from a sponge if that's what it took to have the honor. When a voice emerged from the dulling cloud that had been hanging over my life for the past five of my 36 years and whispered, now, your turn. And I knew then and there that it was my turn and my power, my own life, that I was the grand master puppeteer running this show, up on stage and in charge. My winning horse would be myself. The idea was like an electric shock that reset my brain. The details still vague, I marched out of my house and started toward the gas station, keeping to one side of the narrow, shoulderless road. Cars whooshed by me in the heat, sometimes coming so close that I had to hop onto the thin strip of tick-infested grass separating the road from the forest beyond, the uneven terrain threatening to break my ankles. Some cars honked angrily. There were several blind curves on the stretch, and all the locals drove like maniacs. The road was a test of speed and mortality. Could you round the bend at 55 miles an hour and not die? 60? It was a game we all played. Indeed, at the halfway point of my trek, a car rounded the curb directly ahead of me and hit the brake so hard it fishtailed and went over, to, over the center line, nearly flipping off the road and into the trees before steadying itself. Had another car come along or come the other way at that moment, Everyone involved, including me, would have died spectacularly. I owned a pickup truck that worked fine, and I knew how dangerous walking on the road was, but it seemed important that I risk death in my journey. I was on my way to a blessing, and every blessing requires sacrifice. If I died, well, that would be another kind of blessing. Either way, my fortune would be arranged. Obviously, I made it back fine. I bought those tickets. I admit, I was much more careful on my return journey. My future was in my pocket after all. So wonderful to hear you read it. Oh, um, so, yeah, so first off, just congratulations um, on this beautifully written and totally bonkers book. Um, I, for one, am always partial to books that feel like, like they could only have been written by one particular person, um, that the author, that the book sort of like surge forth from, from the writer's singularly weird place. And I feel like one's company completely fits the bill. 
Um, it's it's beautifully eccentric. And and I wondered if you would just start off by telling us where, I mean, I, I know it's, it's a hard question to answer, like, where do novels come from? But do you remember the particular germ or the, the first inkling you got of it? Was it was it Bonnie's voice or was it this idea of her winning the lottery? Where did it come from? Well, the core idea of the book, which was a person living inside Three's company, is like a personal dream of mine. So I think, I feel like um, writing this book was almost an exercise in my obsession. Um, and I mean, I think writers should write what they enjoy. I think you should enjoy what you write. And like that was, I thought, oh, wouldn't that be interesting if I would just write it out into, into absurdity, you know? And then the further I got into the character, Bonnie, um, I, I just wrote the first, like that first section was the first thing I wrote and, and her voice was just so compelling to me. I, I just knew like this was, this was how I was going to convey this story through her. Um, so that's how it started. Yeah. <laughs> it just started as like a personal obsession that I was going to exercise into, you know, craziness. And well, so when did, when did your interest in Three's Company start? Um, it started about, it was in 2012. I just caught a couple episodes randomly on the TV. And um, I had seen it when I was a kid, but I, I just remember them feeding the seagulls at the, uh, you know, on the end credits. Like, I don't remember anything about watching it as a child, but I know as an adult, um, that was when I found it. And I, you know, it was a tough time in my life. And um, I don't know, it was just, it just felt reassuring. It just felt very safe. And I think a lot of times when we, really glom on to the TV shows or or movies or, or books or whatever. I think it's because they feel safe, um, especially like comfort, you know, they refer to like comfort watching or comfort shows. So that was a comfort show for me. Yeah. And it still is, I mean, it still is, so. It would be fun if people want to throw in the chat if, if they have, if they know Three's Company, if they've watched it, if they remember watching it, in the seventies if, if they were alive then or, or caught in on reruns. I'd just be curious to know um, how how well people know the show. I grew up watching it, so so it was very easy um, to remember. I mean, not not initial, not episodes, but the the theme song that Nat mentioned earlier and the, the general setup and the, the hijinks and misunderstandings. And when I was reading the book, I found myself thinking, well, did you ever think about using other sitcoms? And I was thinking about other shows from that era because it seemed like sort of poignant that it wasn't, you know, you weren't using Friends, you were using something from the seventies that was like had nostalgia built in. But it sounds like you weren't thinking, oh, I could do this with um, Laverne Shirley or Sanford and Son. No, <laughs> um, no, like, I, I just think I uh, I really had that idea of, of like living inside Three's Company. I think I have like some, like, uh, I know I have anxiety issues and some obsessive compulsive 
issues and I've been on medication for about two years and let me tell you I would not have written this book since I've been on that medication because it's really like quieted down my my brain and I mean I was really obviously like very preoccupied with Three's company like everything um, like the set uh, just like every little bit of trivia memorabilia so that was already like built into my brain so i just sort of translated it into a fictional um milieu or whatever you want to say so yeah so you had already done the research for the book it wasn't like you had to start like looking up info oh, yeah. and that was the part it was almost like I wrote this book as an excuse to explore the idea, the fantasy of living, of recreating this thing that I that I personally, as Ashley Hudson, loved. And I mean, I just, it's like you just have to follow that idea. I just had to follow that, that obsession myself. And, um, so yeah, I, that was all, it was almost like the book was just an excuse for me to have fun, you know, to have fun and, and just sort of live in my, my head. Um, so if we could see what was on your desk right now, do you have like three's company trading cards? And you know? actually I have, yeah, I have, um, a cast photo up on my wall. I have, uh, I have all the TV guys that feature the, um, the original cast like from the 70s and the 80s so yeah i do have a few things around but Hard to explain to somebody who's not who doesn't who wouldn't know me you know what i mean like yeah i yeah. don't even think my family really understands like how deep the three's company obsession goes but that's okay because you know you don't have to share everything um and then and people don't have to understand everything about you and that's fine. So right. I'm very happy. Yeah. With my three's company fixation. So um, let's talk about Bonnie's creative power, which in a way it reminded me of what a novelist does. Um, she, I don't know how much, well, yeah, I guess we're, we're not giving anything away, right? If we, we talk about what she does with her lottery winnings is she, she builds the set and, um, and she, and lives, tries to live within the story um, just uh, by isolating herself and creating a, a simulacrum of the, of the town. Um, can you talk a little bit about that as sort of astonishing feat that goes beyond the point of probability and, and asks, um, you know, asks a lot, I think, not of the reader, but asks a lot of, of Bonnie as a protagonist to, to be living in, in her head. Right. Well, I don't think this is a spoiler because I think it's in the back cover description, but something happens to Bonnie that was very bad and um, very traumatic. And I think whenever you experience something like that, you have to find an entirely new way to be, to be a person. I mean, it's not just like, oh, I, I mean, and especially in Bonnie's case, I thought it was really interesting 
to explore a character that was not seeing a shrink or you know a therapist because i feel like a lot of fictional characters in movies and books and whatever like they have this insight into their own trauma or their own mental illness they at least have enough insight to seek help or for somebody else to seek help for them and in bonnie's case i don't think she has that so she has to find some way to survive and then she she wins the money so it's like when you have money you can you can do anything you want really i mean and so she decides to recreate this this whole fantasy and i mean it is derivative i mean she's obviously using the show as the blueprint but it's like she's creating this this entirely new environment for herself an entirely new way of existence and to transcend her past to transcend her entire identity and um like that's a bold move i mean it's a bold move and i you know without the money she probably would just be like some weirdo eccentric that all the townspeople are like oh yeah that lady who's obsessed with three's company you know but i mean she actually you know has the the resources to go live it which um to me is like a triumph of creative power in a way i mean i hope other people see that yeah, I also think so often the the received knowledge about people who win the lottery is that they, you know, it wrecks their lives and they don't they don't know how to manage the money, and she manages it quite well. And and she doesn't have that, um, you know, where people if they they grow up working class and then suddenly they have this a lot of money, then they they still feel like oh internally I you know, identify with the culture that I came from. She has no trouble adjusting, which I right. thought was, was kind of great. She appreciates all the luxuries, um, everything that she can do with the money. And she just goes with it. And she doesn't give it to her community, as you said. Right. <laughs> Entirely selfish. Well, and I think her Bonnie, um, she, uh, it's more, what was I going to say? I, I, that's just, that thought just flew out of my head. I was going to say something about that. Um, Oh, yeah, I know. Well, the, one of the reasons for that, for her ease with just, you know, spending the cash on all of this stuff was, uh, I think I made it very clear in the book that the, the amount of money she won was just, like, unfathomable. And uh, I don't ever think I mentioned the figure, but... I figured like if that was, if the amount of money was just endless, it was almost infinite. I mean, would you even have those reservations at a certain point? You know what I, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, maybe you still would, but. Um, well, she doesn't though. And I think that's yeah. what's, what's so great. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's not hung up on it. And um, and you, you don't mention the number, but there's this moment that I love where she has to inquire like how much is left and you know it just feels like pure fantasy right. oh a lot is left yeah, there's, yeah. <laughs> don't worry there's more coming after that yeah yeah i wish there were a lottery like that i could win really <laughs> i think i could get used to that real fast personally but 
So did Bonnie give you trouble as a character at any point in the writing? Were there moments where she eluded you or just surprised? Uh, it's so no. funny. It feels so long ago. It feels like I wrote this book in another lifetime. Mm. I know all writers say that. And it's only been a few years, but um, I wrote it pre-pandemic. And I guess, <laughs> I think one of the reasons people might relate to it now is because she does sort of take herself away from from the world. And we've all had to kind of do that um, under duress. But, um, but no, I can't really think of when she, but the ending, I think I rewrote the ending a few times. Um, I wasn't sure how I was going to end it. And I won't, I won't say anything else, but um, I'm very pleased with how it how it turned out. Yeah, I won't ask you anything about it because I think it's it's too delightful to, to stumble on. Yeah. Um, are there are there writers that you love? I feel like you know in the in blurb speak and in early reviews, you know people will put you with other writers, and often it feels like that's just about how to frame a book commercially. I'm really curious to know who the writers are that maybe we couldn't tell. Um, are on your bookshelf or animating the work if they're people that you reread or do you know what I mean sort of yeah well I loved your book <laughs> um I uh I love Joy Williams I love her work it's so otherworldly in a way um I used to really like Joyce Carol Oates but I don't know. I think I'm kind of out of that phase. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think. Elizabeth Strout, I've, I've read her. I really like how readable she is. Like she just speaks to the reader so clearly. Like the clarity in writing is it's harder than it looks, right? So um, I really admire writers who who have that clarity it's just they say a sentence or a paragraph and it's just there like you're there and it just seems so clear and simple and transparent yeah yeah um, difficult to be simple sayaka uh i don't know if i'm saying her name right sayaka murata she wrote convenience store woman um i love that one and earthlings i think she has a new short story collection out um maurice meyer who I actually didn't know before, um, I, you know, I contacted her for the first time, like, can you blurb my book? But I love, I love her writing. I feel like she's um, one of the best writers out there right now. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Uh, like looking over at my bookshelf, trying to scan. Like, who do I have up here? I'm blanking. But, um, that's a nice, lovely list that you gave us. It's, it's, I just always think it's fun to hear who you read. And the Joy Williams connection makes makes sense. Um, I, I also just love her. I've loved her work for a really long time. Um, so, um, yeah, don't forget to submit your questions. If you have questions for Ashley, you can put them in the chat. Um, and we'd love to to get your voices into the conversation. Um, so the other thing I was thinking about was how this is an unreliable voice. I mean, it, it's that like in the part you just read, so she's so self-assured, she's um, 
she's funny and you know wry and she's writing in these beautifully balanced sentences but as the book goes on we start to see um you know where the cracks are uh what was it like for you to to work with that sense of um her being not it's not that she's a liar um it's just that there are things she doesn't want to talk about um and it takes a while to come around to you know what what she's been leaving out can you talk a little bit about what it was like to construct a voice that's so tricky like that? Sure. Um, I think Bonnie's thing, and it might be integral to the whole story, is that I feel like she's just in deep, deep denial. More than she, I mean, and I know like she might acknowledge it, like I'm in denial, but she really is like, she like, on obviously like almost a pathological level um and i mean i know this is not like an original thought but i think we're all sort of unreliable narrators of our own lives and bonnie especially i i don't think she has a very realistic grasp of her world i think she sort of connects with these ideas in abstract fashion, maybe, and, um, you know, and just kind of tells herself these stories. And I mean, if she's telling her, you know, if you're telling yourself lies or stories, you're not going to be too honest with other people, whether you realize it or not. And I don't think she realizes it. I think that's sort of almost part of the conceit it's like she she seems very self-possessed and very in you know self-reflective sometimes or interest or not maybe not introspective but um it's like she can tell you all about her thoughts and how she's thinking and feeling but not really like there's so much that she doesn't or can't say because mm -hmm. she won't let herself acknowledge stuff about herself or her past so I think right. that's what makes it unreliable. Yeah. And were there things that, that you discovered in the writing? Or I mean, I realized it was a few years ago that you wrote it. So maybe it's hard to, to reca recapture the blow by blow. But did it, were there things that she hid from you even that came out in the drafting? Or, or did you kind of know going in, oh, this woman, she's, these are where her secrets lie? No, you know, this book I wrote from beginning to end. Like I didn't do any pieces like that. It's almost like I just followed the voice to its furthest ex extent. So um, I, I guess I discovered Bonnie as, as she came to life, really, um, you know, every step of the way. Yeah. How wonderful. Are other things that you've written been been like that? Is that generally how you work comes to you? Or is that a different? I find, well, I just find that it's easier for me to keep, especially like a novel length work. Like it's, it's easier for me to just write it from beginning to end. Now in the editing process, I did rearrange a lot of things. Um, my editor was awesome, Drew. She, uh, I, you know, to kind of like do flashbacks and, 
to edit it in a more in a way that is more a little more readable but um but yeah i wrote it like chronologically beginning to end uh and that was just very helpful to me and i i do do i tend to do that but because if i start in the middle of something it's like well i don't want to go back and figure out like the prequel basically to this awesome scene i just wrote like i i need to start at the beginning and then go forth from there so um, yeah. So there's a question from Lily Houston Smith, a great question. I felt like one's company had some elements of farce in it. Could you talk a little bit about the role of farce in the book? Well, you know, farce is all about misunderstanding. And um, I'm like, I, I think that's Bonnie's whole thing. It's like she misunderstands her own life like her own experiences um i don't want to give too much away but uh, there's a scene in the book toward the middle where it's just like she it really comes home to her like she has misunderstood <laughs> a lot of things or at least that is what she is told at the time or you know finds out at the time and um but yeah, I mean, farce is just, I mean, it's, it's great. It's like, you can, you can do anything in farce. And then at the end of the day, it's all reset. It's like, nobody's truly hurt. I, I read this thing. Um, it was like a, a book on farce. I think his name was Albert Bemmel. And he said like the bodies, bodies are sponges for punishment and farce, like slapstick, what we would call and it it's like we we watch people get hurt and and be punished in these awful ways but yet it's it's like we know as the audience like okay it's it's all part of this conceit you know where I, it's hard to explain <laughs> anyway i hope that came across in the book and um i mean i love farce i mean i think it's just it's so great. Um, I mean, that's why I love Three's Company. Like, it's infantile, but at the same time, I mean, it's so intricately uh, arranged. It's like people are always coming in. They're always leaving. You know, doors are always opening and closing. You know, it, like the timing has to be perfect uh, for things to happen. And it seems really silly and really fluffy. And I mean, on one level it is, but then on another level, like it's this technical masterpiece almost. So I, I do admire that, that comedy form. And also, you know, I just like 12, or, you know, I'm like a 12 year old boy at heart, humor wise, like, it's like, oh, fart jokes are funny. Okay, I'm sorry, they just are. And they always will be, so yeah. I'm what not I'm that when it comes to humor. I remember like Three's Company, every episode being, and correct me on this because you feel like you're the expert, but every every episode was about somebody misunderstanding something, hearing yeah. something wrong, getting the wrong end of the stick, and then and and that was that was it was like one plot, right? Yeah, and it's like every plot of Three's Company would be like two minutes long if somebody just asked like Three questions, you know, three clarifying questions would, you know, I mean, it would ruin the episode, but uh, yeah, 
that's pretty much it. It's like overhearing things um, and thinking something else. And so, I mean, what are the? Oh, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just say, what are the three clarifying questions that if Bonnie asked had asked would would change the make the novel um, would stop in its tracks? I don't want you to have asked them, but what is it that she is just unable to ask about her life? Um, you know, I think she's just, in a way, I think she's just sick of, she doesn't even want to face the fact, like most of us, or at least like me, at least, um, that this is pretty much it. And whatever happens to you, you have to deal with it and you have to move on and and survival is not pleasant. I mean, it's just, it's not. And the, the stuff that Bonnie endures, the trauma that she experiences, and then the aftermath where she's just sort of like surviving and she's just trying to get through day by day. I mean, who wants to live in that kind of reality? I'm sorry, like, but I mean, that's just, that's death. Like it's a living death. I mean, that's why we have fiction. That's why we have fantasy. That's why we have dreams to sort of lift us out of that nastiness. I mean, and, and just the, the dullness. Uh, there's, I mean, life can just be so boring. I mean, thank God for imagination, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's, yeah, I, I don't think she, I don't know if that answers your question at all. It's, but, better. Um, it's better than answering my question. Yeah, and maybe this would be a great time to hear another bit of the novel, the the, the part where she is actually um, oh. stepping into that world that she has created and becomes mm -hmm. one of the three. Okay, yeah. So this um, takes place after she, after Bonnie wins the lottery and she has completed her recreating the set in, in her mountain place. Okay. And she's living, she's living as the characters in Three's Company, one by one. Okay. For the first year, I was Janet Wood, my first love. I needed her sensible brain to ground me, to fully settle me into my new world. In the morning, I woke as Janet Wood and I stretched in my bed as Janet Wood wearing the same navy blue nightgown emblazoned with the number zero that Janet Wood wore. And my alarm clock was set for 7 a.m. Janet Wood's wake time and the, the light barely penetrating the ugly curtains that shrouded Janet Wood's bedroom window. And when I turned off my alarm, I was Janet Wood. And when I clicked on the lamp, I was Janet Wood. And when I looked in the mirror, I saw Janet Wood's dark and shiny hair and my eyes were newly brown. I'd rise from bed and put on my robe and bedroom shoes. And I'd say hello to ghost Chrissy, who within days of beginning this routine became real Chrissy. Get up Chrissy, I'd call softly as I passed her bed to exit the room. And Chrissy would wake with the groan of a child and stretch and yawn. And I'd go to the bathroom and splash my face with cold water before shuffling into the kitchen. The dog followed me everywhere, but I ignored it. In the kitchen, I might find Jack standing in front of the stove. 
The overhead light would be on, plus the morning light coming through the window at full glare. Rainy days were best, gloomy and dark outside, the orange-yellow kitchen happily glowing inside. And if Jack was already there, I would make coffee, do my part. And if he hadn't arrived yet, I would make toast for myself, maybe pour a glass of orange juice. I'd also set the table for my roommates, if they were behind schedule. And I'd wait until they bustled in, sleepy but bright, friendly. Good morning, each of them called to me. Oh, morning, I'd reply back. On the days Jack cooked breakfast, I was his sous, I was his sous chef. I fried eggs and whipped together simple mixtures I knew by heart. Eggs and bacon or gourmet oatmeal, toast, coffee, orange juice, milk. Wanting to get the dog away from me, I threw scraps of bacon or rubbery scrambled eggs across the kitchen where they splatted in a far corner. Together, Jack and I created a serviceable meal, usually finishing up just as Chrissy breezed in, still sleepy-eyed. Afterward, we washed the dishes, each of us taking turns according to the day. We were responsible adults, always doing the dishes immediately following a meal and rarely later. Though on the days it was not my turn, I often found dirty dishes lingering in the sink hours after eating, the egg residue drying into an implacable scum. But instead of complaining, I washed them myself, enjoying harmless catty thoughts. In the living room, in its cage, the canary chirped. I fed it or cleaned up after it while keeping my mind blank. After a leisurely breakfast, I brushed my hair and dressed for work. The dog nipped at my heels and I ignored it. I had a wide collection of pantyhose I rolled on day after day, sometimes taking them down from where I draped them over the shower rod after washing them the night before. And my closet and bureau were stocked full of bohemian jumpers and bell-bottom jeans, modest skirts and turtlenecks. Though the longer I was Janet, the sleeker my wardrobe became. Tailored jeans and blouses, professional midi dresses. After dressing and doing my makeup, I left the apartment and caught the bus on the corner. Every day, the dog followed me outside. Then, as soon as the bus doors hissed shut, it would turn toward the woods and disappear. Watching it flee from my bus seat, I would close my eyes, relieved. I don't want to go on too long, but yeah. Those pantyhose were such a great period to tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten what it was like when you had to wash your pantyhose. <laughs> Well, there's actually a joke. See, that's the thing. It's like people who are really like super fans of Three's Company, they will find a lot of Easter eggs in my book because there's like a joke on the show about how Janet hangs her drippy, droopy pantyhose, nylons, you know, up in the in the shower. So that's my <laughs> that's my ode to um to Janet Wood's nylons. So yeah. So, uh, yeah, they're probably the super fans. They must exist in, on the Internet, right? Are there like message boards for Three's Company? And Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, most of them are like old men who just want to tell me like how hot they find Suzanne Somers like back then or something. But um, that's kind of annoying. But there are people who appreciate the show just like I do. Um, I befriended a collector who lives um in Canada and, and he had so much memorabilia from the show. It was really cool. Um, I like from the set and everything. Like he even had the kitchen corner um, 
that appeared in the show. So that was really neat. Yeah. I've met a lot of fun people, <laughs> you know, through the internet um, who are who are fans of the show. Subcultures. So somebody yeah. asks, the canary dog reminded me, can you talk about the animals in the book? Do you, Ashley, have an anti-pet sentiment or is that particular to Bonnie? Oh, I think it's particular to Bonnie. I am not Bonnie. I mean, I love Three's Company, but that's sort of where the similarity ends. Um, no, I have a cat and she's 15, 16 years old. She's sleeping on the carpet right now. Um, no, I'm very pro-pet. So that's just, that's just uh, the story, make-believe. Yeah, I think that the pets actually, um, for those who haven't read the book yet, the, the pets are not a part of Bonnie's design. Um, you know, everything that she has chosen for her new world is um, inanimate. <laughs> She's planning to live alone. And then um, the contractor surprises her with the pets. And so I think that's a, a really important plot point because it's something that um, makes an emotional demand of her as well as a you know, caretaking demand that she's yeah. not ready to meet. Um, here's another question from Brian. I'm reading your book and loving it. This is Pride Month and Three's Company was a pioneering show and then it acknowledged queerness in a mainstream sitcom. Could you talk about that and share any relevant thoughts? Um, great question, Brian. Um, yeah, you know, Three's Company is one of those shows, it's like, it can be incredibly offensive. Like, it's very extremely dated humor. Um, but in the show, Jack Tripper, who is a straight man, is pretending to be gay in order to live, to be allowed to live with two girls. I mean, like the premise is just insane. And um, and the landlord, like Mr. Roper, the early landlord, like he's bigoted, but he's always the butt of the joke. Like whenever he makes a joke, Mr. Roper makes a joke at Jack's expense, you know, that he's gay or, um, you know, Mr. Roper, like everyone's laughing at him, like and how stupid he is, you know, or how, backward thinking he is. Um, and I think that was like that introduced a new idea, I feel like on TV, like, hey, you know, the culture is changing. Maybe we shouldn't be so <laughs> close minded. I, you know, and there again, I think that's where farce really helped the situation, because it was all just so outlandish and so ridiculous, you know, so outrageous that it's like you could talk about things like like homosexuality or you know queerness and and have and and also punish in a sense the the people who were against that you know or who judged it or, or thought it was bad or ha, you know had a lot of stereotypical thoughts um and there's a scene where where jack you know like mr roper makes a a a gay joke or whatever and and jack says you know your mind is just brimming with meretricious fallacies and mr roper says i try to think so i mean he's like an idiot so um so yeah like there was this sort of undercurrent of queerness 
that's really like it treads that line again like i mean the show obviously it was about straight people and doing their thing but there was like this this feeling of you know being gay is actually the preferable state you know like that is farce like turning the the social then the then social norm like on its head like yeah like it's actually more okay for a, a gay guy to live with two straight girls than like a straight guy living with two straight girls like that was more scandalous yeah so i think three's company it kind of did this weird like reverse uno card move and um i don't i i think that uh it, it was like a show about sex but no nobody ever had sex like that's another funny thing about the show so yeah i don't know three's company is like a really fluffy critically panned television show but i feel like there's a lot of layers that you can look at from different contexts or in different contexts and, and um you know see that there's more there yeah i think it's interesting the brian said it's you know so it was considered a pioneering show um in terms of queerness and and your book is is queer but doesn't use the that language you know there's there's no there's no discourse about queer identity or being a lesbian but the but you know but there's queer sex and so i did that do you feel like bonnie like she's responding unconsciously to the queer content of three's company or does it just happen to be a part of another thing she doesn't understand about herself? I, yeah, I kind of felt like that was, I think she was surprised um, by that part of herself. But you're right, you know, I think, I mean, again, like Three's Company is like this super sexy show. It's, you know, it's all of, it's all sex jokes. But then it's like the girls are virgins and we never see anyone like have actual sex. I mean, there's hardly any like hint. The only hinting that there will be sex is between two the two married people who hate each other. Um, like those are the only two people we ever see like go into the bedroom like, oh, they're going to do it, you know? So like that's definitely in Bonnie's subconscious, I think. And um, and then when she's actually faced with with somebody who strikes her interest that she feels safe with, you know, um, she discovers a new part of herself. So, yeah, I think I think she was surprised by that as well. Yeah, I'll be interested to see if people talk about that part of the book. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of people discover their sexuality. Um, through experience, you know, it's, I mean, maybe today is different because, you know, we have like social media and like LGBT uh, Q people like are a lot more visible and it's a lot more mainstream. But, you know, I feel like a lot of people discover who they are through interaction. You know, it's like, oh, like this feels right. Like this makes sense, you know, finally. And there's no label, there's no title. It's just, something that happens and that's just the way it is. And I feel like that's how Bonnie 
and Rita like experience their relationship. It like it's just like oh like oh that's what that, like that makes sense you know so yeah right and they're living in a world that Bonnie's constructed so they don't need to have labels they don't need to deal with anybody else right. anybody right. else's judgments or understanding of what it is that they're doing yeah and it's not like they can just I mean I guess they could it's not like they're just googling like oh what does this mean like what does this feeling mean you know it's like we always have to double check ourselves on the internet and um and I just think it's it's just beautiful like they, they just find this coexistence this relationship naturally like it just sort of they explore it together and like that's that feels really special to me yeah they're as offline as you can be Right, right. Um, that was such a good question. Um, let me in invite people again to drop questions into the chat because you're taking us in interesting places. Let me wait for the awkward pause. Well, I had one that I think we kind of started talking about in the uh, in the green room beforehand. But Sarah, you mentioned that you two had a canary connection uh, that I don't know if we touched on it when we answered our questions about the canary and the dog, but I was curious what that connection was. Oh, <laughs> that's a spoiler. That's a kind of a spoiler. Uh -huh. um, but <laughs> I mean, we can, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I guess that's, what, what do you think, Ashley? Should we just go ahead and spoil it or tiptoe around yeah, go it? Ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Um, yeah. both, both of our novels have a dead bird in them. And, um, and my experience uh, of that was like that, that some people found that it just incredibly difficult to, to read. Um, actually I remember a bookstore owner said, um, she said, I love your book, but my partner won't even read it because she knows there's cruelty to animals in it, which really took me by surprise because, um, you know, it's a story. <laughs> there were no animals that were actually harmed, and I wasn't on the side of the the pet killer. So, um, but yeah, I, I think that 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 sometimes that just has to do with the the way people read. And um, I hope Ashley, you won't get as much heat for your your canary as I got for my parrot. I yeah, I didn't even think about that aspect, but I guess yeah. Do you think books should have trigger warnings? Like, how do you feel about that? I don't know. I because I feel like if if there were trigger warnings, I think my book would have all of them. Like, I, you know, like I feel like because there's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, might be disturbing to some people. But yeah, I I don't think books should have trigger warnings. Um, I mean, I you know I think it's different in like a classroom setting where you might say to students, you know, this, this book has this happening and be prepared, but in, in life, I just don't, I don't see how we could do that. And I also just feel like it's a, you know, you're, you're being challenged, but it's on the page. You yeah. can always, you can always close the book if you need to take a That's deep true. breath. I don't know how, what do you think about it? Has it, have you ever read a book and wished that somebody yeah. could read you? No, <laughs> personally, no. Um, I understand like why some people would want them, but 
Well, okay. It's like I watch I watched like something on Netflix, and you know it has the little warnings up in the right or the the left hand corner, and sometimes it spoils it. It's like. Well, I didn't know suicide was gonna, you know, like gonna be in this. I guess that spoils it for me. I wonder who's, you know. So, I don't know. But on the other hand, like I can see, I I, I can see both sides of it, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think with your if you're with your book, if you were to label it, you'd get, be giving things away, um, and that you could you wouldn't you lose, you know, some of the, the ability to, to startle a reader or disarm a reader mm -hmm. by simply yeah. labeling, you know, what the, what the trauma is. Well, that's like one of my favorite parts of reading is being surprised and not like in a gimmicky way necessarily. Um, but if it's done right, I mean, sure, like throw a gimmick at me, but, um, but yeah, like being surprised or like you said, like that's that's part of the discovery for me of, of reading. So I know I enjoy that, but yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and the, the reader is ultimately in charge. You know, you can throw the book across the room. If right, you that's true. You put it through a shredder if you want, throw it on the bonfire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully no one will be throwing one's company on a bonfire because it is a wonderful, wonderful book that if you have not read yet, you very well should escape to three's company with one's company. And if you don't have your copy yet, you can order one by clicking the shiny green button at the bottom of your screen. And thank you again to Ashley Hudson and Sarah Levine for sharing with us this evening for all of you who either know someone who may enjoy this event, or if you want to send it to someone or rewatch it, it will be available for replay in just a few minutes at the same link that got you here to begin with. So thank you all for joining us. And we hope everyone has a great night. Thank you. Thank you. So nice to talk to you, Ashley. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.